ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Before we start, just a warning. This program contains the names of Aboriginal people who have died. It all begins telling stories around a campfire. It's a hot night and I'm camped by a dry creek bed with my friend AK, full name Annette Cogolo. AK is a Walmajari woman. She has warm brown eyes and she loves to tell stories. And big rules, the crazy one. And, and my friends tell me, AK, you'd beat big rules for sure. AK's been showing me around her country, Walmajari country, on the edge of the desert in northern Western Australia. Her nephews have slow-cooked kangaroo tail in the hot coals. And after a feed and a cuppa, it feels like the right time to ask her about something that's been bothering me. What's with these strange names that people have in the Kimberley? They were given these names and they just give no, we'll give you potato or we'll give you a shovel, you know, names like that. Across Northern Australia, she tells me, she's noticed the same thing. Members of her own family with names that just don't make sense. Some with the names of European dictators. And there was another old man, Stalin, an old family from us, from Almagedi people out of the desert. And Hitler, he worked on Louise up near Christmas Creek, all that area. I don't know who gave him that name. And there was another old girl named Shirley Temple. There was a woman named Shirley Temple. And another name, you know, old fellow from Mangajards, his wife. Her name was Dorothy Lamore. Can you believe? Hitler, Stalin, Dorothy Lamore. I'd been hearing these names whispered in the Kimberley for years. Aboriginal elders carrying the names of long-dead politicians and pop stars. Were they just nicknames or were they official? All kinds of names were given to these men because they, they had their own Aboriginal name, they had their own skin name. They knew who they were, but white people came and said, oh, I named him this. Like funny, like a joke. They were people from cattle stations, AK says. Most of them now dead. But then she says another name, the name of someone who is still alive. There's also a Bing Crosby in our family. He lives at Yaganara now. There's a man named Bing Crosby. Yes. Imagine going through life called Bing Crosby. An Aboriginal elder from the edge of the Great Sandy Desert carrying the name of an American Christmas crooner. On one level, it kind of seems funny. There are people with quirky names, like Tin Pot or Billy Can or Helicopter. But some names, like Darky or Sambo, they feel uncomfortable. They kind of sound like slave names. So how did generations of people in Australia end up with these names? Are they actually slave names? And how are they impacting life for people today? I want to find out, starting with Mr Bing Crosby. Do you think he'd be happy to meet me? And... Oh, yes. I'm sure he'd love to speak to you. Find out about his name. And finding about mainly his name 
and um, where it came from. A few weeks later, we're plunging into the desert in my battered four-wheel drive. We're going to meet Bing Crosby, Balmajeri man, named after a famous film actor or something. Is he a singer? I think he's a singer, is he? It's a hot sunny morning and the car's crammed with camping gear and recording equipment and AK's partner Leo, who's come along for the ride. Bing Crosby lives in a small community on a cattle station called Old Cherubin. And to get there, we've got a six-hour drive down ragged gravel tracks. Oh, it's getting rough. Yeah, very rough road. Fewer trees. The landscape's flat and rocky. There's no water inside, and it's hard to believe that AK's ancestors lived here for thousands of years. It wasn't until the 1930s and 40s that many families, including AKs, moved out of the desert and onto the cattle stations that had spread like spiderweb across the landscape. When my mum, she came out of the desert when she was 13. She's still alive. What do you reckon they would have made of it, like the first time they saw white people coming through on horses? I think it was strange for them, not knowing. You know, they were saying they're devil. You know, white men, or ghosts, you know, like white, pale person. Before we hit the road, I dug up newspaper clippings and government records for this area from around the time Bing Crosby was born in the 1940s. There were strange stories of a young Aboriginal woman killed by witchcraft and a teenage stockman who died alone in the desert, apparently from dehydration. And the West Australian government's native welfare files, as they were known at the time, they revealed a litany of strange names, just like AK had described. In the 1950s, there was a man named Hairpin and his son Taipin. There was a 10-year-old boy named Roosevelt and a 12-year-old called Churchill. There was a station hand named Potato and another called King Stumpy and a woman called Queen Topsy. And there, listed in faded black and white print, was a woman named Shirley Temple and her four-year-old son, Bing Crosby. What's he like? Tell me about him. He's a lovely old chap, um, very quiet, patient, very respectful person. We pull into Yakanara, just a handful of dusty streets lined with two dozen houses. You can see that brand new tractor, the slasher. And people are sitting in the front of the shop there. Hello. Erin, this is Auntie Jessie and Vicky is her uh, daughter and Uncle Bing's over there now. Oh, Mr. Pine, have we done about you guys? Thank you so much for having me along. Yeah. Yeah. A dozen residents are gathered on the grass in the afternoon sun, sipping cups of tea and watching the kids buzz around on bicycles. And among them, a thick-set man with a beaming smile is hunched over the bonnet of a beaten-up Toyota. So tell me, what's your name? Bing. Bing Rosby. Have you had this car for long? Yeah. 
It's a good car? Putuya. I have them for two years. But now what's happened? Not working? Now I need a battery. Getting cracked. Do you reckon we can fix it? Yeah. Let's give it a go. Yeah. Bing directs my car close and hooks up starter leads. His face lights up as the engine starts. It started. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Leave it run. But I leave it. Uh, let it run for a while. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I feel like I had time to uh, introduce myself to him or get to know him. But um, Bing Crosby is very much alive and well in Yakanara, and now he has a functioning car. Bing reckons he's 74 years old, but it's hard to know for sure because like many Aboriginal people of his generation, his birth wasn't recorded. Later, the authorities just guessed people's ages and assigned them all the same generic birthday of July 1. Bing mainly speaks Walmajari, but he shows me around his backyard. It's dotted with car wrecks that he's patiently repairing. Do you like living here? Yeah. Good place. Life is good. <laughs> Do you reckon you're the oldest person at Yakanara? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the oldest people here in this place. I want to know if Bing's got any paperwork confirming his official name. So I wrote AK in to help translate. I was just wondering if he had any other identification with his you name You got many, on it. Like a, yeah, yeah, I got a pension card. ID, hold on. Oh, it's all ID. <gasps> Is that you? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the proof of age cards show a younger, darker-haired man with his name spelt out in capital letters. Bing, name yeah. Bing Crosby. Date of birth, 1st of the 7th, 1949. Mm. So, Bing Crosby, your name is not just a nickname, it's your proper name. Yeah. Yeah, from little kid time. Little kid, from little kid time? Yeah. The name's from little kid time, Bing says, from when he was a baby. We assemble at his kitchen table with a spread of old photographs and files. Yeah, do you want some water? Yes, please. So, we just have to have you sit kind of close together. Yep. And so the story begins. My name Bing Crosby. I'm from Old Cherubin Station. My old man been come from Teshet. Mm. And my mother from Nukunba. He been born in Nukunba. Mm. Bing's mother was called Shirley Temple. There are no records to show who gave her the name. When Bing was born, the family was camped at Old Cherubin Station. His mum, a domestic servant, his dad, a stockman. And how did you get the name Bing Crosby? That money you know, put a name. Money, boss, It was the manager who gave him the name, he says, the boss of the station. See, when Bing was born, the Aboriginal people living in the station camps had little control over their lives. They'd been driven off their land by pastoralists or police or moved in to escape the harsh drought conditions of the desert. They worked hard, but not for wages like other Australians were entitled to. 
While the native boys are busy with the horses and cattle, the girls work at the homestead. Today they're collecting their weekly rations from the station store. Rations from the store are part of their wages. Laws were in place stripping people of basic freedoms. All Aboriginal children were made wards of the state. People could be detained without reason. Local police enforced segregation laws. And people working on cattle stations, they could be arrested just for leaving the property. And when babies were born, AK explains, the station manager and his wife would choose the name. When the women had their babies, the manager actually gave them the names of their child. And, um, and the parents or the mother weren't aware of uh, what names were given. They were only recorded down. They didn't understand English. They didn't know their powers to speak to Korea people back in the days. And um, so they really weren't aware of making the decision for themselves with their own child. It was standard practice throughout the first half of the 20th century. At the first point of contact, missionaries, police and pastoralists had the right to record whatever name they wanted for an Aboriginal person in the all-important native welfare files. Sometimes they were affectionate names. Some pastoralists even gave hand-picked staff their own family name as a sign of respect. But often the names were careless or insulting. The managers or the government people, um, they just gave them names so they can remember them or record them, whereas they couldn't pronounce their Aboriginal name, but they, they had their own name, and that was recognised by the whole tribal language group, you know, right across the Kimberley, you know. And your name gives you your identity, your kinship, really. So uh, if you strip that away? No, it's not right. It doesn't sound right. When Bing was born, his parents did give him an Aboriginal name. My name is Puru, Blackwell name. Which, which do you prefer to be called? Puru, no. Puru, he wants to be called Puru. His Aboriginal name, ah. original Aboriginal name, given to him at Perth. But his family had no say in what name was officially recorded. And when the government started documenting Aboriginal people properly in the 1960s and 70s, the names were carried over. Bing Crosby reckons he was middle-aged before he discovered he'd been named after someone famous. Did you know who Bing Crosby was? The singer? Never the gentleman you do. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. He... Didn't know about Bing Crosby until he heard about Bing Crosby. There was another Bing Crosby. And you got a shock. So he wasn't aware. Never knew about Bing Crosby. Never ever in his whole life. Nothing. Nothing. He was. I remember He was listening on the radio when he heard. But he's a king of love. Yes, that's how he heard. Jola, think it's Jola. Yeah. He heard it on the radio that he was a singer, famous singer. This Bing Crosby, the American one, he was one of the biggest music stars of the 20th century. In the 1940s, his music was all over the radio, which was the main point of contact with the outside world for people on remote Australian cattle stations. 
and you can pick up that photo and his photo. <laughs> Bill Crosby, go over there, famous, another Bill Crosby in Yakanara. <laughs> and what do you think of Bill Crosby? Do you like his music? Yeah. He <laughs> likes his music? Mm. Mm. After, that's a good story. Mm. Oh, and it's funny. I mean, it is, it is. And especially somebody, ah, 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 there's another Bing Crosby. Bing doesn't seem too fussed about the name he was given. But for AK, while she can see the funny side, there's something more sinister going on. A joke made at the expense of powerless people that's lasted a lifetime. I just don't understand why these names were given to these people. Maybe because they did, they just made fun and say, no, you know, I know, I know a famous name. Maybe I could just give this person this name. Like a joke? Yeah, like a joke. Not even talking to the parents, not even <coughs> having yeah, their courtesy of talking to the mother. You know, children were taken away during those times as well. Bing and his mother, Shirley Temple, were named after much-loved celebrities. But just up the road, we've confirmed that there was a baby given the name Hitler. And across the border, in the Northern Territory, there was Mussolini. Now AK wants to take me to a home just a few doors up to meet the family of a man named Stalin. I'm Brian Passenger. My Aboriginal name is Jinnamundu. Brian's out the front of his house, watering plants. He's in his 50s. He has neatly cropped hair and a thoughtful manner. So Brian's kindly taking me into his house. Wow, so many photographs. The living room's lined with family portraits and a display of well-worn cowboy hats and riding boots. A shrine of sorts to a special man. Do you have any photos of your father? Oh, yeah, I just got a photo of my dad. This is my dad, Stalin. And this looks like it was the funeral notice. Yeah, yeah. For your father. So yeah. it says, in loving memory of Stalin Wargara. Yeah, my dad came from, from, from the Great Sandy Desert. Just a small boy came from the desert with my grandmother and he came with his bush name. Uh, my dad was, bush name was Wadigara. Yeah. And then when he got, came up here, new sta- uh, this old station down at the river there, they gave him, they gave him his name Stalin. When he was an adult, Stalin added Wadagara as his surname, a compromise of sorts. But like Bing, he went through much of his life not realising why some people found his name funny. Do you think he minded or did he even know that there was a, a dictator in Russia called Stalin? I think probably he didn't know about, you know, that blog. But that, I think the station manager just gave him that name. You know, <laughs> you know in those days... You know, people came from Dasset, it was really hard to understand what, you know, white men was telling them, putting their name there. Mm-hmm. So I think someone told him, some, you know, family told him, that, that's the name, that's a blog in Russia, and it was a crude blog. That's why it's, they named, named you after him, you know. 
Brian's father died in 2009. The funeral brochure shows a frail-looking man with a whiskery white beard. But the name Stalin? It didn't die with him. Years before the family realised its origin, it had already been passed down the generations as a way of honouring their patriarch. My nephew here, he's got a middle name for my um, dad after his grandfather. Yeah, like the Stalin, that, that's his middle name. Another child, a great-grandson, is also called Stalin. The name has become like an intergenerational time capsule, a relic from a different era. But Brian and his family have made it their own, carrying it on as a way of honouring the old Walmajari warrior who was born under the desert stars and died in an unrecognisable world. AK has her own opinion. I don't think it's a good thing for that name to be continued because um, the families weren't aware of Stalin, this Russian horrible, you know, cruel man. They thought it was a good name, but not knowing someone who had that name was a horrible person. It turns out AK is not the only one offended by the naming practices. Buried deep in newspaper archives, you can trace the debate playing out. Was it okay for Aboriginal people to be named like pets or farm animals, or did they deserve better? So a contact who's been helping with the research has just sent me a whole folder of clippings relating to these naming practices. Gosh. The first article is from 1951. It's about an Aboriginal baby called Joe Stalin. It's not Brian's father. The dates and the location don't match up. But it's another baby from Northern WA who's been given the same name. It's got a photo of a very gorgeous-looking little baby. The story's about how baby Stalin has gone to hospital in Perth and the staff are very amused to be treating a baby with that name. The tone is jokey and the reporter's having a ball with bad puns. The next one... Wow, so this is only two years later in 1953 and the tone is quite different. The headline is, Bad Aboriginal Names Attacked. And the article reads... Field and welfare officers, mission superintendents and institutions have been urged to set an example in the sensible naming of Aboriginal babies. The Native Affairs Commissioner, uh, Mr Middleton, said some Aboriginal babies and young children were still being given undignified, nonsensical names which stuck with them through life. Recent examples noted were Cockatoo, Stockman and Joe Stalin among children and Stiff Earhole Jack... Tommy Post Office and Jackie Fishhook among the adults. While it may not be intended, bestowal of such names had the effect of putting the Aborigines in the category of domestic animals. <laughs> wow. So it's all there. The concerns are there. The discomfort is clearly there. In 1953... It feels like Australia was wrestling with itself, and maybe it still is. Throughout this reporting, I've actually still been questioning whether this is a story worth telling. Maybe the names are just a quirk of history, something from long ago that isn't surprising and doesn't really matter. If Bing Crosby doesn't mind his name, why should I? But I'm haunted by something AK said to me when we first discussed the names. She said, you don't name something unless you feel like you own it. 
I think it's sim similar to the slave plantation time in America. Similar. How our people were treated. Not even many stories were captured like that, but they were just told and passed on and kept. Like that newspaper article said, the naming practices, whether malicious or not, put Aboriginal people in the category of domestic animals. And as I dig further back into the Australian archives, the names get more racist. On pearling boats in the 1880s, there are people called Monkey and Darky. There are also Aboriginal pearl divers listed as Sambo, a pejorative term for a slave, now considered a racist slur. What was going on in outback Australia at that time? Were these, in fact, slave names? That's a really good question. I think the slavery question is really important. This is Steve Kinane. He's a Mudamudda man from Mirawong country here in the Kimberley. He's been researching and writing about this kind of stuff for 25 years. Pastoralists, they saw themselves as easily uh, powerful enough and righteous enough to be in the position to give someone a name, which is an incredibly important thing. Then um, it does, to an extent, reveal the imbalance of power and the way in which, to a degree, people who gave people names like that saw us as childlike, saw communities as within their power to name in a ridiculous way. So are the names evidence of slavery? I can sense Steve choosing his words carefully. Firstly, we know that there was blackbirding that occurred in Western Australia, and that's where people were kidnapped and forced to work, and that is a form of slavery. We also know that some pastoralists would trade workers for other workers, or they might say we would trade um, uh, women. So that, to me, is as if you are living under an occupation, as if you are living as a slave. Is it slavery in the form of people were captured, taken somewhere, put on the blocks, and auctioned in Australia? No, that form of slavery didn't occur. And that's where I've tended to use the term bonded labour or indentured labour. In the first half of the 20th century, when Bing Crosby was born, the WA government was running a sort of state-sanctioned labour scheme. Basically, pastoralists would pay the government for the right to use Aboriginal labour on their properties. And it's been proven in court that people weren't paid properly or paid at all. Just this year, the WA government's agreed to pay $180 million in stolen wages. It wasn't slavery like in the southern states of America, but researchers like Steve Kinane argue it wasn't far off. Aboriginal people were denied basic civil rights, and it was their cheap or unpaid labour that built the cattle industry. I've headed up the highway to sit down with a well-known local pastoralist. Hello, hello, hello. So i just get you to introduce yourself again. OK. Um, At the last minute, she asks to remain anonymous. I don't really want to be identified. OK. She's concerned about the fallout from talking out on behalf of the pastoral industry. And frankly, I'm not surprised. The history of how Aboriginal people were treated in Northern Australia, it's a sensitive subject around here. Some people are a bit scared to, to talk about 
race relations? Well, certainly around my area it's getting worse, Um, much worse, I feel. This pastoralist, who we'll call Amy, is a well-respected figure in the local industry. To be clear, she wasn't involved when people like Bing Crosby were given names, but she does know the context. Sometimes they um, took a name from the station name and other times the station um, manager just sort of couldn't understand what their name was, so it turned out like that. It was never anything derogatory that I have ever been aware of. Have you ever heard people raise concerns about it or be upset about it? No, I haven't. Um, I think it's probably the younger ones that think that um, it is derogatory, but it wasn't seen as that in the day. She's right that the naming practices were in keeping with the common attitudes of the time. Aboriginal people were considered inferior. They'd probably never vote or travel anyway, so what did it matter what you called them? But Amy says overall, people were treated well. Um, They were well cared for. They may not have been given wages or very low wages, but they had their whole family there with them. Some station people didn't treat them as well as they should have, perhaps, and some were really downright horrible. But um, that's the way it goes back then and it still happens now. So, Do you think that era has had a bit of a legacy on how people feel now? I think the... um, Younger people probably um, feel like that, you know, well, they, you hear them now saying that they were slaves, just black slaves. Um, and maybe they were in some cases, but I don't think there was a, a, such a thing as slavery. Certainly they worked for no wages, um, but they were well looked after, the majority were well looked after um, and they really enjoyed their times and so many of the old people these days want to go back to that. Amy is right about this. Most of the elders I've interviewed, they remember life on the cattle stations as the good old days. They may have been given odd names, but they were living on or close to their country, whereas later that all changed. In the 1960s and 70s, most people were moved into town where there was little work, not much housing, lots of alcohol and barely any access to their homelands. So the station days are a complicated memory, a time of hardship but also happiness. Do you think more broadly the pastoral industry has a responsibility to acknowledge what happened that maybe a lot of these businesses were not viable without this labour of Aboriginal people? Or do you think that actually only makes things worse? I think it probably just makes things worse. You know, you can't change history. Um, My view is we live in this society, we have Aboriginal people, we have white people, and we just all need to get on together. I think a lot of Australians might agree with Amy. 
What happened, happened. Best focus on the future. But for people like Steve Kinane, this attitude can be toxic. So these are all very recent things. These aren't long ago. These are a part of people's living memory and their experiences and a part of most people's living memory and experiences. They have an impact on the individuals who experience them, but they also have an impact on the next generation because if your elders have been treated by the wider society with disdain, then it, it, it changes your sense of how you see that wider society. You don't trust it. You don't necessarily want to engage in it. So when people say, oh, you're talking about this, it's dredging something up, it's just telling history. It's just telling the facts. It's not even spinning the facts. I'm, not, I'm, I'm very careful with my words. It's just that it's uncomfortable for some people. What I'm getting at is we, we share this history and I feel it's our duty to make sure that everyone knows the foundations of the West Australian and the Australian nation state that we are all citizens of. It's really important, not because it's to make anyone feel ashamed and neither is it to make anyone to take blame. But if you don't know your history, how can you truly move forward into your future? Back at Yakanara, I'm paying a final visit to Bing. Come to say goodnight and goodbye to Bing. He's beaming. He's finally sold that car, the one with the dodgy battery. You sold it? Yeah. How much do you sell it for? One grand. I'm going to get another car from Broom. Ah, $4,000? No, I'll get him for 2000 uh-huh. I'll get foil wrapped this time. Hey, Bing, it's so nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, no worries. I'll come back soon and you can show me your new car. Yeah. <laughs> As we're about to leave, AK and her auntie say they want to take me to one last place. A special place. As the late afternoon sun lights up the spinifex, AK directs me down a corrugated track, singing church hymns in Walmajari as we go. AK's Auntie Jessie tells me to pull up at a flat clearing near a clump of green bushes. She says it's an important place for Walmajari tribes. This is the main ceremony place for them, this area. From all the different, different tribes, you know, they used to meet up together, different languages. Mm. Until one quiet night when families were asleep under the stars. Early in the morning, they would crap them up because all the people were still sleeping or something. And the policemen came along and shot them. They had no hope to get away. They would leave more people dead now. They would burn them. They would shoot everything, everybody. Probably from killing all the cattle or something. Oh, they would just wanted to get rid of Blackfella, just to clear the country, yeah. 
I haven't been able to find any written record of this, but these kinds of mass shootings were not unusual in Northern Australia. There are hundreds documented. I've since interviewed other Aboriginal elders from the area who described the killings and the location in exactly the same way. So what's this got to do with names, you're probably wondering? What's it got to do with old man Hitler and Stalin and Bing Crosby? Well, the longer I've spent digging into this, the more it all feels connected. This era of frontier pastoralism, when these two cultures banged up against each other with a huge power imbalance and an inability to make sense of each other. Different languages, different names, different ways of seeing the world. And one group came out on top. It wasn't actually that long ago, and the legacy of the conflict is everywhere. 70 years on, you still have Bing Crosby quietly living with the name of an American pop star, while just up the road, a massacre site sits unmarked and unverifiable, just a story told around a campfire. AK reckons this era created confusion and chaos from which many families are still struggling to emerge. It is impacting today because when people living in older communities and townships don't really know where their traditional homeland is. And there's a mixture with all different language and country and intermarriages. And um, that's a hard thing for a lot of our families. She says one of the biggest misunderstandings is that the assimilation of Aboriginal people was completed. People were given white names, but they still inhabit another world a tug of war that's exhausting and ignored. People are still living in two different worlds. And um, some people want to live how they want to live. We can't change them. Some families are choosing to go back to their Aboriginal names, discarding the station names they were given, which loom as a reminder of a tumultuous time when life changed forever. Like for me, I don't really want to dwell on what actually happened. I just, why did this thing happen? You know, why wasn't it fixed? Why didn't the Korea people understand coming to the land and taking things and hurting? Because you've got to understand each other and work together and live together. And it works both ways. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by John Jacobs. Fact-checking by Benjamin Sveen. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I am Erin Park. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thank you so much for listening. Gangani <laughs>
Grillo, 